Good morning, SBC. It's the Von Delft family here. We just want to say we miss all of you and we're so grateful to have such a wonderful church that we can still be together, although we are physically apart. We can't wait to um, hear about the testimonies of what God has done in your life in this season. And we can't wait to be together so soon. Bye. Bye. Hi, SBC. Missing you all. Can't wait to see you again. You're just in time to join us for a cup of coffee. And we really, really can't wait to serve you yours straight off to church one day soon. Bye-bye. Love you guys. Bye. Hi, SBC family. We're missing you guys and looking forward to seeing you soon. And from the Aldermans, just know that we're praying for you all, particularly those of you who are maybe in financial, under financial strain at the moment, for the elderly, but for everyone, we hope you're keeping well. Hey, SBC. Hi, everyone. We just really want to say that we love and miss you guys so much. And that we are praying for you all every single day during this trying time. And then we cannot wait to be together as a big family soon. Dogs out. <laughs> and a very warm good morning from me as well. I hope that you enjoyed seeing some of those familiar faces. I know that they're all excited to see you again one day soon. I only have one thing to bring to your attention this morning, and that is that on Thursday, we released a statement as a church about how we are going to be responding to these new level three lockdown guidelines. If you didn't receive that via WhatsApp, you can find it on our Facebook page or on our YouTube channel. We would really appreciate if you'd go give us a listen. And then if you have any questions, you can contact one of the elders or one of the staff, and uh, we will help you to process any of your thoughts or feelings on that matter. I'm going to hand over to Matt and Marina. They're going to pray us into today's service, and then Joey will be bringing us God's word today as we dive into lesson six of A Call to Courage from the book of Joshua. Trust that it'll be a great service for you. Uh, don't forget to stay tuned in when the sermon ends as we worship together as the SBC family. Hello, Hello SBC. SBC. We hope you all well. We are missing you very much. Hey, we want to just send a shout out today uh, for all those who've been contributing to the pantry ministry. Guys, thank you so much for your generosity. It's been amazing. We've been able to bless many, many families in our church and also just some families in our city. So well done, guys. Another special thing that happened today was that we had a national day of prayer and we celebrated this as a church. If you um, missed out, you can have a look for this on Facebook and spend some time praying through some of the points that we mentioned. Yeah, and this Sunday is also particularly special because it's Pentecost Sunday. We as a church remember that way back the early church in Acts chapter 2 had the Holy Spirit poured out on them at Pentecost, which was 40 days after Passover. And uh, so today we're going to be celebrating and remembering the power of the Spirit that we get to enjoy as Christians because of this promise of the Father that's been poured out upon us. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Friends, today we want to remind you that because of the Holy Spirit inside of us, by nature of our salvation, we get to enjoy this comforter, we get to enjoy this counselor, we get to enjoy this helper. And so we want to remind you to lean into this wonderful presence in your life, this person, member of the Trinity, that gets to be close to us wherever we go and reminds us of our sonship and our daughtership in Christ. And also, that we are to seek a fullness of the Spirit. And our prayer today is that our church would enter into new heights and depths in the experience of the Spirit and in walking by the Spirit. 
And so today, remember the Spirit not only empowers us to live, but to be great witnesses for Jesus. And that's our prayer for you. So let's pray now. Father, today we want to remember that this mighty Holy Spirit is the greatest gift you could give us as the, the knock-on effect, the side effect or what Christ bought for us on the cross. And so, Jesus, today we want to honor you for your sacrifice and resurrection that enables us to enjoy the power of the Spirit. And we ask that the Spirit would grow in us, Lord, that he would become more and more uh, the one that we listen to and are led by and experience fullness in. Bless us today, Lord. Pour out fresh outpourings of your Spirit upon us as a church. And we ask as Joe preaches now that you would promise by your Spirit and empower him to develop and, and to de deliver the, the, the message that you have for us today. In your precious name. Amen. 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 Over to you, Joe. Hi everyone, welcome to today's online service. A particularly big warm welcome to you if you are checking in with us for the very first time this morning. Maybe you were just scrolling through Facebook or YouTube and you've stumbled upon this and you've decided to watch us or maybe a family member or friend has sent you the link and that's why you're watching. Whatever the case might be, my prayer for you particularly uh, this week has been, Lord, instill in them a deep desire for Christ. Maybe it would be for the very first time or for the first time in a long time. And my hope is that you would love Jesus and see that he is worth pursuing after. Um, but also a massive warm welcome to you if you're part of the SBC community. Uh, it's great to be able to meet, even though it might not be ideal. It's God's grace that even in a global pandemic that we are able to gather with each other over the internet and to be able to connect. Um, I can't wait though for the day that you and I are able to rub shoulders together, to be able to see each other face to face, be able to worship God as a body physically, uh, worshiping Jesus in spirit and truth. That's going to be wonderful, absolutely wonderful. But in the meantime, I want to encourage you to still pursue after community. As I've already said, God has graciously given us this uh, opportunity to, to meet online. Uh, and in that, there is still an ability to be able to uh, build community. Like today, if you are watching this uh, sermon live, the comment section will be busy, full of people quoting scripture, saying hello, sharing a testimony. Read those, use those, let it stir up encouragement in your heart. We have prayer meetings that have been happening throughout this lockdown. We had one this morning. We usually do them during the week, but we were just answering the call from our president to, uh, uh, to take today as a national day of prayer. But even today and, and, and last times have been really beneficial to the soul. Um, I have uh, been fortunate enough to be a part of some of those prayer meetings and leading it. And last time I was kicked off just after my section and I tried to get back on and I couldn't get back online. So I decided to join you on Facebook just to receive. And it was so encouraging to my soul to be able to just read the comment section, to pray with you and contend with you in prayer. Um, and I just felt a part of the SBC community. We've also had games evenings. There have been loads and loads of fun. Dane, Kerry and Caitlin have done a fantastic job in running those. And uh, they have also been a great 
uh, a part of growing community, even as we've been apart. Be a part of those. And of course, the most obvious of the lot is joining your cell group um, on your normal weekday online. If you have that opportunity to do so, go ahead and do it. And if you do that, if you pursue after community in these moments, I can guarantee that when we finally meet together, it is going to be so much more sweeter than if you had neglected community now. So my encouragement to you is, I know it's not great, but do your best to pursue community now. Enough from me. I'm going to hand over to Brendan Miles. He's one of the deacons here at SBC. He's going to read Joshua 6, our text this morning, and he's going to bring it back to me. And then after that, we will dive into uh, that scripture and unpack it. Hi, Hi SBC. SBC. Today's reading, we're reading from Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go on, go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Okay, reading Joshua chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Okay, reading verse, uh, Joshua 6, verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Joshua chapter 6, verses 25 to 27. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. 
So the Lord is with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Thanks, Brendan. Um, let me just remind you of what verse 1 had to say. It says, Now Jericho shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel, none went out and none came in. Jericho had heard of the great might and power of God, his expedition and his conquering of Egypt and his provision and his protection of the people of Israel through the wilderness. And they realized that the people of Israel are heading their way. And as a result, their hearts sink as they know of the great task that lays before them in order to try and conquer them. And so what they do is they decide to lock all their doors. They've got these big, mighty walls around the city, and they're going to lock their doors to the city, the gates to the city, and no one's allowed in and no one's allowed out. And their hope is that God and the people of Israel will not be able to defeat them and take the land. And there's a caution here for us as believers that we need to make sure that we do not put our confidence in walls. We do not put our confidence in earthly things, but rather what we need to be doing is putting our confidence, our hope, and our trust in God. And scripture gives us a ton of instruction that that's the thing that we ought to do. We see this in a passage in Psalm 20, verse 7. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. So some trust in uh, the ability to go and fight, uh, the armies, the power. But what do we do? But we trust in the name of the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the word money here that Jesus used is the Greek word for manna. And the root word for manna and the root word for confidence are exactly the same. So essentially what Jesus is saying here is he's saying you cannot put your confidence in God and put your confidence in other things. You either find your confidence in God or you find your confidence in something else. You either find your confidence that God is your provider, he is the source of your provision through difficult times, or you find the size of your bank accounts and the amount of money that is in it as the source of your provision and uh, through difficult times. You can only serve one or the other. But what we've got to realize here is that these two options aren't of a similar value. One option is infinitely valuable. It is a perfect, powerful God that will always be there and never fail you. And the op other option might have some value, but it's a limit to that. There might be some form of protection, but it's not perfectly protecting you. It will fail you at some point and it is fallible and therefore is not the great option. And, and so when we look at the two options that are before us, it seems, at least on paper, a no-brainer. Courageous faith takes the no-brainer option of putting its trust in God rather than in people or in bank accounts or in a job security or in a government, because those things are fallible and will ultimately fail us. But having said that, I know while it might look simple, a simple decision to make when it's on, in black and white on paper, but real life is a little hard. Um, real life brings other things in that make this decision a whole lot harder in the moment. And those things are our sinful desires, emotions, and various other things. 
And our sinful desires often make this, what should be a real clear option, a whole lot more difficult than it is. But you might say to me, Joe, but if I desire it and I want it and I can get it, therefore that's obviously the right decision that I need to make. And I know we've discussed this already this year. We did so when we were going through the first couple of Psalms um, that we did at the beginning of the year. Uh, But may I just remind you again that desires aren't a real good guide on how life should be lived. They aren't helpful in getting the best for us. And let me um, explain that at least two ways. I think the first reason why desires can't be trusted is because our desires themselves can contradict each other. I think most of us here have at least a desire to have a healthy lifestyle, to have healthy bodies so that we might, when we get older, be able to do the fun things that we've always enjoyed to do. So we might just enjoy ourselves as long as we possibly can. But if lockdown has taught me anything, I also desire strongly chocolate. I enjoy it. And, and, but these two decisions and these two desires lead to very different destinations. One leads me to a health, a life that I can live prosperously and enjoy my life when I'm older, God willing. The other one leads to not that immediately. And so our desires themselves, while both very strong, often mean we have different outcomes that we don't want. And so we, our, our desires themselves cannot be good guides to be trusted there. But also, I think our desires are too weak. They're too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in a very famous quote. He says, It seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are a half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, you cannot trust your desires because they they take the very first option. They don't shift around and see what is best for me. They are far too easily pleased with things that hold very little value uh, to, to your life. And so we are far too easily running and enjoying mud pies when on on the other hand, we have this offer of a holiday at the beach. And this is so important for us to be able to grasp and understand in order for us to make and live a courageous life for the glory of God. Is to understand that what God is asking us to do when he says lay those things aside is he's not asking us to lay aside satisfaction and joy in fact what he's asking us to do is to lay aside the petty small satisfactions and come and delight in a full satisfaction and a full joy he's asking us to take a higher standard of pleasure and desire and come and find gratification in him. And so when we understand that, it makes our decisions a whole lot easier. That these desires that are trying to blur this decision, this is not what God wants, but it feels so good. No, no, no. There's a greater offer at hand. And that's what God and scripture calls us to. We see this in a number of different scriptures. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you talking about God, make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence, there's a fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 63 verses 1 to 5, the psalmist expressing his deep desire for God says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Here it is. Because your steadfast love is better than life. I, my lips will praise you. Psalm 37 verse 4, a command here says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 2 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and, and you, your labor for that which does not satisfy? He said, well, come and enjoy me. Why are you going off and enjoying the things that do not satisfy you? Come and taste of me. He finishes off the section by saying, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. John 6 verse 35, Jesus speaking here, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Philippians 4 verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Scripture is full of the invitation of God to come and delight and enjoy yourself in Him. It is even a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Here is this invitation to come and find the fullness of satisfaction in God himself. Absolutely wonderful. And so our decision here is between infinite joy, fullness of satisfaction, a security that is perfect and never fail us to something that has some value that gives us a little bit of temporal joy that doesn't ultimately satisfy and some security, but will fail us. These are the decisions that we have at hand. So let's bring that all back and let's look at our text. And what we find is that Jericho has this option before them. They can either lay aside their lives and their possessions, or they can fight against this God. They have understood the magnitude of this God. They have realized his power, his might, his expedition. They know and have said as expressed uh, by Rahab in, uh, in Joshua 2 verse 11, that he is the God of heaven and earth. Their hearts have melted at the holiness and greatness of their, this God. And the option here is, should they surrender everything they have and all their possessions to this God and to Israel? And you might say, Joe, that's a bit hectic. But what do they gain if they do so? One, they save their lives. But even more than that, what they gain is they get to gain this glorious God who is the perfect protection and satisfaction. An immediate example of that in this text is Rahab herself. She has, just like the rest of the people, seen the magnitude of God and has expressed that he is the God of heaven and of earth. And she lays aside everything for him. And what does she gain? She saves her life. Not only her life, her family's life. She becomes a part 
of the nation of Israel. In this text, it says, and she still lives in Israel to this day. Now, I'm not talking about 2020. She's very, very dead. But what they're talking about is as the story was being penned, as they were writing John, uh, Joshua 6, that Rahab was a part of Israel. She became a part of the nation, not an outsider, a part of the nation of Israel. But not only did she gain a new nationality, but she also gained a new identity. She went from being prostitute Rahab in Jericho to suddenly a hero of faith throughout scripture and throughout history. That's how Rahab is viewed. She, she got a reputation, a high one, because of her sacrifice and her courageous faith in pursuing God. And being a part of Israel meant that while she left her home and her city behind, she gained an inheritance with them. She gained more land. She gained greater things because of what God had done. But more than all of those things combined is the fact that she gains God himself who will satisfy her and keep her and give her eternal life for the rest of eternity. But what did Jericho choose? What do the individuals in Jericho choose? They don't choose to submit to the God of heaven and earth, but what they decide to do is place they trust in walls. And I don't know much about these walls. Maybe they um, really had defeated and kept them safe from many, many oppositions before. Maybe they had a good track record, like some of the things that you have put your trust in. But my friends, I want to let you know when it came to the magnitude of God, that there wasn't even someone who put their hand on the wall to push it over. It just fell down because some men marched around blowing trumpets and on the seventh day after doing it seven times, shouted really loudly. God wiped out their confidence in a moment. It did not last at all. And so the options that we have can be summed up like this. It can be summed up that we can choose God and gain everything or we can reject God and lose everything. Jesus says it's far better than I do. In um, Luke 17, uh, verses 33, he says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Let me maybe end off this point uh, with the parable of Jesus. Jesus tells of a man who's walking through a field. Um, I don't know where he's going. He might be heading to work. He might be heading home. But he's walking through a field and he stumbles across this invaluable amount of treasure. Um, and, but the, he can't just take it home. It's not his. The field's not his. Um, so what he does is he covers it up, hides it so no one else can find it. He heads home and he just starts to sell everything so he can afford to buy the field. He sells all he owns, his house and everything. I can't imagine that conversation went well with his wife as he doesn't explain it to her. But he sells everything he has. People would have asked him, what are you doing? No, I'm going to buy the field. But, but if you just buy the field, what about your home? What about these things? What about how are you going to feed yourself? And he was like, no, I need to buy this field. And he couldn't tell them why. And they would have called him crazy and ridiculed him for his action. But he knew the infinite worth that he was gaining. And he goes and he sells all he has and he buys his field. And in doing so, gains this treasure. And friends, the same is with us. When we see the glory of who Christ is and this God and what he offers us, we can give everything up because we know of this value that is coming our way. Let me uh, move on to our next points. 
The next point is this, that courageous faith calls us to obedience even when things seem extremely odd. Um, I mean, the story is quite an odd one, isn't it? Uh, Joshua and Israel are told that they have to now march around Jericho. They are to do so in absolute silence. No one is to speak. They must take the Ark of the Covenant with them. They must march in formation and there must be trumpets that blow. That's the only noise that is made. And they are to do so once for the first six days. March around, march around for six days straight. They must do that once. And on the seventh day, what they ought to do is they must walk around it seven times blowing their trumpets and at the end make an incredibly loud shout. Shout very loudly and these massive walls that have stood the test of time will come crumbling down. Very, very odd and impeculiar, isn't it? I can't imagine that this went very well with uh, Joshua's war veterans and the men who like to strategize in battle. But here's the thing, that often when we live courageously for God, he starts to call us to do odd things. Just like the man who would sell all that he had to gain the treasure, we are to do things that seem rather impeculiar and don't make any sense to anyone else. God calls us to courageously do something that some people might never have done before. When talking uh, through this idea with Matt, Matt said he, he calls it the principle of originality, that there are times in our life that God calls us to do something that no one has done before. There is no textbook on it. There is no um, uh, examples that we can follow. And we are called to do this. But why? Well, I think God does this for a number of reasons. One, in doing so, he gains all the glory. When God calls us to uh, live out the principle of originality, to do something extremely odd uh, that should not work in principle by walking around walls and shouting and letting them fall down. When it works, there is not a shadow of a doubt that God has come through. All the glory is given to God. If, if the people of Israel had gone and fought Jericho in hand-to-hand combat and took them on and wiped them out very quickly, the nations around them would have gone, wow, the people are strong. But in this particular case, what happens is the nations have no shadow of a doubt that it's not the people themselves, but rather the God that leads that people that has achieved the purpose. And so God calls us to do odd things at times because it makes sure that he gets all the glory. The second thing is that it grows our faith. I can only imagine Joshua a little bit tentative by this idea given to him by God. Did I hear you right? Are you sure? I must just march and blow some trumpets and on the seventh day do that seventh time and shout aloud. It grows faith. It starts to refine us because, as I said before, there is no textbook on how to do this. Joshua had not seen Moses march around the walls a number of times before. Israel had never seen this done, and we have never seen it done again. But here, God does it, and in doing so, we are required to walk by faith and not by sight. But when he comes through, faith is grown drastically for the rest of the tasks that he calls us to. But also, and I think this is the third point, God refines us drastically in this. He takes our pride, which could easily get in the way, and he just seems to lovingly put that aside for us and grows humility in us. In the ancient world, if you were a commander-in-chief, 
like Joshua was, your very first battle was extremely important. The way it went uh, would mean uh, and would uh, impact the way the rest of the nations viewed you. So if your battle went really well and you defeated someone very convincingly, there would be an honor and a respect that would be placed on your name. But if it struggled and you made some really bad decisions or you were defeated, there would be disrespect and um, people wouldn't view you as, as highly as they ought because of your first battle. So even to a point that the kings of Assyria, um, when they became king, would make sure they would go fight an incredibly weak nation and wipe them out drastically so that the rest of the world and, and nations would know that they weren't meant to be messed with. So you can imagine Joshua's first battle He's going to take on this massive city with walls that haven't been conquered before. This is going to make his name great. And what God tells him to do is get a, uh, get the army. It's like, that sounds good. Get the trumpets at the clear wall. That sounds good. And I want you to just march around them. That's all I want you to do. And at the end, I want you to give a really loud shout. And it falls down. And here we see that really Joshua would have had to put his pride in his pockets. The rest of the nations, I'm sure, or at least the people of Jericho, as they watched the army march around and around day after day, started to think, man, these guys don't know what they're doing. They haven't launched an attack. They're trying to spy out our walls, but our walls are so strong, they can't get through them. They've got to realize that on day three, day four, day five, even day six, or in day seven, are ridiculing Joshua. You guys don't know what you're doing, mocking them. I'm sure that's all fair in war, as they mock them from the towers and from their strong walls. But Joshua ultimately was vindicated, wasn't he? And I think that's important for us to understand is that we will be vindicated just like Joshua was. When those walls came crumbling down, the nations around the world knew that God was with Joshua and his name spread, he did. And in a very similar way, while God will refine us and humble us in going into uh, rather odd sections where people might ridicule us. Why are you leaving this high paid position so that you might go and serve God in this area? Why are you rejecting this promotion because you just want to save time so that you might serve more at church? Why are you not going on holidays so that you might be able to be at your Bible study or at your special church service? Um, you know, why are you doing these things? Why do you share your faith with me? I, I don't believe in your God. Your God's ridiculous. It's fairy tales. It's made up. But ultimately, we will be vindicated. And now for some of us and for some times and certain situations, we'll be vindicated on the side of the grave. People will say, why do you do this? Or I don't think you can achieve this. And you go off and do it. You are vindicated. God can do it just like Joshua in a few days or in, later on in life vindicate you for your decision. But there will also be times when this side of the grave, we won't be vindicated, but we will one day stand before God and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And all those who mocked and ridiculed us for our belief and what God has called us to go and do will suddenly realize as we stand before this glorious God and he embraces us and is proud of what we have done and our obedience to him, then in those moments we'll be vindicated before all the nations and all the generations. And those who rejected the call of Christ, who mocked us, who persecuted us, Man, before them, we will be vindicated and not put to shame. 
This is a wonderful thing that God does, is he ensures that we will be vindicated. And I want to close off with this, that ultimately we can live courageous lives because God is with us. You see, the difference between the first generation of Israelites trying to take uh, um, Canaan and going in and the difference between the second generation wasn't their leaders, wasn't one because one was led by Moses and the other was led by Joshua. But ultimately, the success of the first generation to the second generation was that the first generation had faithfully rejected God, unfaithfully rejected God. And as a result, as they went in, God was not with them. The second generation was when they went in, they had faithfully been obedient and God was with them and they achieved all it is. And that for me is the ultimate encouragement to be able to continue on to persevere and to be live a courageous life, even in the midst of a principles of originality, doing something that's never been done before, even in sacrificing much that we own in order to gain more of God, is because we know that God is with us. This invaluable, perfect, or loving, or satisfying God will never leave you nor forsake you because of the blood of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And knowing that God is with us stirs us on to continue on fighting. I hope that encourages you. Live a courageous life for the glory of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful for all that you've done for us. We're thankful that through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, that we know that we can come and enjoy you. That what this world offers fails to compare to the satisfaction and joy that is in you. And so, Lord, we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit and the guidance of your Spirit that you would show us that when temptation comes our way, that it does not satisfy, but rather that you would empower us to choose you above anything else. We ask, Lord, that even when you call us into uncharted territory, into places where others haven't gone before, to do things that the world might think is mad or crazy or uh, that doesn't make any sense, that we would, with courageous faith, follow you in there, knowing that you have never left us nor forsake us and you will never do so now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.